Hello and welcome to the first and probably only episode of No Such Thing as a Brera Quadrifoglio, the first anniversary Alfa Romeo driver podcast brought to you by the Alfa Romeo Owners Club. We're coming to you from four undisclosed locations in the UK, although two of us are section secretaries, so you can probably narrow it down a bit. My name's Guy Swarbrick, and I'm sitting here with Kirsty Hodson, David Faithful, and John Griffiths. And we've gathered around the microphones with our four favourite facts from the world of Alfa Romeo. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with my fact. My fact this week is that at National Alpha Day at Vista on the 27th of June, we're planning to bring together every 939 series car that was imported to the UK wearing cloverleaf badges. All of them? So every 159 Brera and Spider quadrifolio? Hopefully, yes. Both of them. Both of them. Yeah, it sometimes feels like there's been a cloverleaf or quadrifolio version of every model, but there have been quite a few gaps and there never was a 159 Brera or Spider quadrifolio. Lussos, TIs, Italia Independents, ProDrive S's, but never a quadrifolio. So how have we managed to get two for Vista then? Yeah, good point. So technically we don't have any quadrifolios because there weren't any. The Q in Q4 stands for quadrifolio, of course. So there were a few of those, but they didn't have cloverleaf badges. But we are planning to have two Spider Millimilias. There are only 11 made, one for every Millimilia win. And we think three of the 11 were right-hand drive and that one of those went to Australia. We think three were right-hand drive. Yeah, I did contact the Centro Documentazioni to verify it, but they don't have any official records on the Millimilia, which is slightly odd. What we are fairly certain about is that there are only two in the UK, number seven and number 11, and that those 11 cars all had factory-fitted quadrifolio badges on the front wings, the only 939 series cars to have them. So that'll be the 1935 win for Pintacuda and Della Stufa in the P3 Tipo B, and the one in 1947 with Biondetti and Romano in the 8C 2900B Berlinetta Touring. You googled that, didn't you? Might have done. Interestingly... The Mille Miglia spiders had cloverleafs on, but even though the emblem dates back to 1923, I can't find any evidence that any of the Mille Miglia winners had them. They seem to have been reserved for Grand Prix cars only. The official story is, of course, that the original cloverleaf badge was on a diamond background. After Hugo Stivoci's death, it was changed to a triangle. There's some evidence to suggest that there are even circular backgrounds, and we've even heard about three-leaf clovers. Yeah, but that's just a shamrock, isn't it? It's not easy to be sure. To be sure. And of course, that's awful. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, and of course, then the Cloverleaf first appeared on a road car, so the Julius Super Ti, and it was on a round background. It was round on, on road cars and triangular on racing cars right up until the 164. And on the 33, back in the 80s, it had no background at all. I did a bit of research into spiders because I've always wanted one. And why it isn't called Alfa Romeo Ramya? Well, it seems to be something to do with the eight legs on a type of horse-drawn carriage roof. But do you know why it's a spider with an I on an Alfa and a spider with a Y on a Porsche? No. Well, I'll tell you. It seems to be partly because in Italian it's pronounced speeder, which they think is hilarious for a sports car. But actually, mostly, it's because there isn't a Y in the Italian alphabet. To be fair, that doesn't always stop them. Uh, arguably the most famous football club in Italy is Juventus. And the Italian alphabet doesn't have a J either. Talking of football, did you know that the two Milan clubs, AC Milan and Internazionale, have divided the Alfa Romeo logo between them? Milan has a cross on its badge, and from time to time, Inter's used the serpent, the Bischioni, on its badge. And another connection with Inter Milan, my favourite Italian team, is that they clinched the Italian Serie A championship last weekend, which is known in Italian as the Scudetto, the shield. The same as the Scudetto in the centre of the Alpha Grill. Fun facts about cloverleaves. The clover plant is actually called a trifolium. 
which literally translated means three leaf. The four leaf clovers, or quadrifolios, are historically considered lucky. There's only one in around 10,000 clovers have more than three leaves. And it's actually a genetic mutation that must be inherited from both of its parents. And there can rarely be five, six, seven or more leaf clovers, which are extremely mutated. Um, but if four leaf clovers are considered lucky, can you guess what an unlucky clove leaf might be? I can't, but I hope you're going to tell us. I am. Clover leaf interchanges. They started building them in the States from the early 30s. And if you think about it, how they look, uh, it's two highways or motorways crossing. So if you look from above, it looks like a clover leaf. And the clover leaf interchanges were designed to allow cars on either road going in either direction to exit and loop around either one or more of the four clover leaves to change direction. They were a brilliant engineering solution, actually, to a growing traffic problem until you start to get to the 1980s, when you realise that to exit one of the clover leaves to rejoin a main carriageway, you have to filter into the traffic just ahead of the point where cars from the main carriageway are trying to filter off onto the clover leaf. That sounds like a recipe for disaster. And there were loads of studies in the 90s that showed that the cloverleaf interchanges had the highest proportion of vehicle accidents because of that filtering and merging, uh, either on or near those loop ramps. There's hundreds of reports of confused drivers spending hours looping round and round the four cloverleafs, trying to merge on or get off. So they've been designing cloverleaf interchanges out of road networks across the world ever since. OK, it's time for fact number two, and that is Kirsty. My fact this week is that the weirdest thing about the Alpha 90 dashboard wasn't the 45 degree angle of the strips of LEDs for the speed and rev count. And that does sound fairly weird. It was, but not a patch on the glove compartment. I think Jamie Porter hinted about this in episode 24. He did. That's what made me look into it. So uh, did it come with matching gloves in the glove compartment? No. But the thing that came in the glove compartment meant that there was absolutely nowhere to put your gloves. Well, this was the early 90s. So what was there? A soda stream? Atari games console or something? Think executive saloon. The glove compartment doubled as a briefcase. You just pulled it out and took your lunchbox with you. Ah, you mean the meal preparation box. Sorry. Don't worry, we'll come to that later. I have to admit, I looked this one up because it seems so unlikely, but it's true. What's really weird is that the Wikipedia page for the 90s says that the car's design was conservative inside and out, with perhaps the only unusual element being the U-shaped parking brake lever. It had a briefcase in the dash. Not to mention the speedo and the rev counter. Yeah, now, importantly, it's also had a front splitter that lowered itself automatically at speed. That's 30 years before the junior quadrifolio did. Well, it wasn't to improve front-end grip, was it? No, well, they say it was for aero, but I think it was to improve cooling too. Do we think a briefcase built into the dash was what every middle manager was looking for in a company car? Doesn't look like it. The 90 was one of three saloons that replaced the Alfetta. The Giulietta was slightly smaller, the Alpha 6 was slightly larger. And all you can say for the 90 is that it outsold the 6. 380,000 Giuliettas were sold, 56,000 90s and just 12,000 6s. Today, according to how many left, there are just 6 in the UK, 5 of them on Sorn. In fact, it's probably easier to get hold of the briefcase. There's one of those on eBay at the moment for £336.76 plus £79.33 postage. There are even fewer of those 12,000 Alpha 6s left, to be honest. But one that is still around is one that was made for Pope John Francis II during his visit to Milan on the occasion of the 20th Eucharistic Congress in May 1983. Presumably he went for the 6 rather than the 90, so he could keep his pointy hats in the glove compartment. <laughs> This one, painted white and had armoured body and windows, a radio telephone and a fire prevention system. It's 
now in the Alfa Romeo Museum, tucked away at the back. So I wondered if there were any other Alphas with their own luggage. And the 4C Spider 50th anniversary came with a very posh limited edition overnight bag. But they all seem to be number one in the series. So that's a potentially unlimited limited edition. Or very, very limited. While I was looking for big Alpha Saloon facts, I kept getting sidetracked by GTVs when I was looking for Alpha facts because I've, I've always wanted a GTV. And club member Mark Gornall sent us a player profile page from football magazine Match Weekly from 1980. The player featured is Man United's Arthur Alberston. According to the article, drove a GTV. Mark also said that he'd heard the team bought the entire squad Red Alphas when they won the 1977 Cup final, but we can't confirm that. That's remarkable. No, it's true. Back then, United actually did win trophies. The bit we can't <laughs> confirm is the bit about the cars. I emailed their press office last weekend, but apparently there was something else going on, so I didn't get a reply straight away. But they have now replied, and their historian, who's old enough to remember them winning things, thinks it's unlikely because they would have bought British cars, like Fords, he said. Don't. Just don't. Anyway, he did remember reading that the 1966 World Cup squad all received cars, so that might be where the legend originated. And I didn't even mention City being in the Champions League final. Or the fact that United are owned by Americans, like Ford is. If you're going to buy an entire football team and Alfa each today, you'd probably want to join the owners club. Then you could take advantage of the discounts through the Alfa Romeo affinity scheme, which have just been updated. I did find a few more footballers with Alfa connections. Johan Cruyff had a GTC. Theo Walcott had a 4C. And Mario Balotelli, who played for both Milan clubs, either side of a spell on the blue side of Manchester, owns a Julia Quadrifoglio. And Thibaut Courtois, the Real Madrid and Belgium goalkeeper, was Alfa Romeo driver, photo competition judge Antonio Giovinazzi's teammate in the official virtual F1 series during the first lockdown. You're not going to let that one lie, are you? Not without a court order. Stop the podcast. Stop the podcast. Uh, Why are we stopping the podcast? It's an advertising thing, I think. Ah, yes. That's it. This week's podcast is brought to you by Built for Athletes. That's right, and I can't think of two people less qualified to talk about anything that was built for athletes. Oh, I don't know. Uh, Built for Athletes are the official backpack supplier to the Alfa Romeo Racing Orland team. And as well as the backpack itself, there's a range of accessories, including a lunchbox. I think that's a meal preparation box. Sure, that. But even without the lunchbox, the bags are great. Really good quality. They've got two side bottle holders. For your spirits and your mixers. Laser cut mole construction. Any idea what that means? Well, it gives a cleaner aesthetic and a stronger composition. No, that's what I'm after. It has a 45 litre capacity, which frankly is more wine than I need even on a full day out. And it has multiple compartments, pouches and zip pockets with YKK Japanese zips and upgraded extra durable plastic hardware. And they are the best zip. 45 litres, that's enough to hold two pairs of trainers slash footwear. Towel, gym clothes, meal preparation, and, it says here, small training tools. Doesn't bear thinking about. I'm still wondering how you wear two pairs of trainers. It does have a dedicated laptop compartment, which will take laptops up to 17 inches, and has front and side webbing for extra attachments. USB cables? I assume that's what they're for. What I do like is that it opens flat to 180 degrees for easy packing and unpacking. No need to tip up your lunchbox. That's a meal preparation box. But all the compartments have two-way openings, storm flaps, and pull tabs for easy access. And it's the right size to carry on as cabin luggage. I imagine that might be useful again one day. Yeah, maybe. But they are great. We gave one away in last year's photo competition, if you remember. And you and I were so impressed, we both bought one. We did. It's the best laptop bag I've ever had. And we'll probably hold gym kit and stuff as well, if I did that sort of thing. I should have ordered the lunchbox too. It's a meal preparation box. Yeah, that.
Anyway, they're so good, the 2021 version is currently sold out. They should be back in stock in June, and you can leave your email address and you'll be notified when there are more available. Uh, but if you can't wait, you can still buy the Large Hero 2.0 backpack, which is essentially the same thing without the Alfa Romeo branding. And it has lots of Velcro on the top for you to add your own Alpha patch. You can, and they're available in a range of colours, all from builtforathletes.com. I might even buy another one. Bags are like Alphas and cameras and bikes. The right number to have is N plus one, where N is the number you currently have. And that's very sensible consumer advice right there. Right, on with the podcast. On with the show. Okay, it's time for fact number three, and that is John's fact. All right, get ready for this one. My fact this week is of the 1980s Type 4 cars, the Alpha 164 was the only one with unique doors. Don't all cars have unique doors? I mean, you can't put the driver's door on the passenger side, can you? Well, there is that, but no. In the 80s, Alpha, Lancia, Fiat and Saab joined up to build a shared big platform saloon. So we got the Alpha 164, the Lancia Thema, or Thema, the Fiat Chroma and the Saab 9000. The Alphas was the only one styled by Pininfarina, and it was the only one not to share its doors with the other three. And presumably that was so it looked the best. Drove the best too, by a long way. And the Saab no doubt had half a ton of extra protection in it. Yeah, by all accounts, the initial work though was done by Lancia, and they invited Saab over to Italy to witness the first crash test of the prototype. That's an almost Arna-esque division of responsibilities. <laughs> Nearly, isn't it? Uh, apparently, after the car hit the concrete block with some force, the Saab team declared that there was much work to do. But that was strange, as the Lancia team declared the results to be perfect. I'm sure Nissan thought the same about the styling of the Arna. So Alfred got involved after that debacle. Yeah, we think so. And of course, he ended up with the best looking one, which would have ranked most important. Not that I'm biased, but it had a Basso V6 in it, so it sounded the best too. And it did have the coolest interior, plus a cool range of colours, and was the fastest with a cloverleaf version as well. I'm sure some Lancia fans would argue that the Ferrari engine Tamer 832 sounded better, although I do prefer a V6 to a V8 personally. And it's pretty impressive that the Q4, the final four-wheel drive version of the Cloverleaf, was 0.2 seconds quicker to 60 than the Lancia. Given the shared platform of the Type 4, I went looking for the most expensive new part for the 164. Not surprisingly, it's the 3-litre V6 engine, incomplete. The part number I quite like, it's 9641237. And the retail price in the UK is £25,600. Sadly, there's none in stock with Alfa Romeo, but you can buy the 2-litre twin spark engine from the factory for just £14,141. The part number is 9641284 if you're interested. But then I spotted a familiar part. Um, There's a little plastic cover that goes on the wiper arm bolt on the 164, and it's the same as the Mito. Part number 6050175, which is one of my favourite little parts. It's probably the most commonly shared part across all of our cars. And the actual name of, of it in the Fiat Alpha part system is a boot. But this one part, tiny plastic little grommet thing, fits the 145, 146, 147, 145, 159, 164, Brera, Spider, Mito, Giulietta and GT. Plus... Fiat 500, Chroma, Punto, Bravo, Panda, Stilo, Tipo, Ducato, and Fiorino. Plus the Lancia Delta, Dedra, Ypsilon, and so the list goes on. Plus Arbaths and Arbath Puntos and so on. So if you think about it, they must have been made in their millions for about 3p each. Though naturally they 
currently are available at retail of £5.70 each from your dealer. And with the new enlarged affinity scheme, you can buy most of the Fiats on that list now too, as well as Jeeps and even Fiat vans. Talking of doors, the Brera prototype had gullwing doors, which would have been very cool if they'd made it to production. Incidentally, the Brera was named after a very posh suburb of Milan. Now, the name Brera is medieval Italian and means it's an area of land either cleared of trees or lacking in trees completely. No wood, in other words. And this suburb was outside of the city, outside of the city walls. And so it was kept clear for defensive purposes. And this might explain why the Brera never had a wood interior option. Here's a fun fact, Kirsty. Brera, the suburb of Milan, not the car, is the home of the Brera Observatory, which works in partnership with the European Space Agency and NASA, and is a leading part of the Italian National Institute of Astrophysics. And the director of the observatory in the 50s and 60s was an incredible woman named Margarita Hack, a brilliant astrophysicist, who went on to be the first Italian woman to administrate the Trieste Astronomical Observatory right up until 1987. And then she went on to become the first female director of the astronomy department at the University of Trieste until around 1997. Interesting bit of trivia, not really related to the 164 as such, but did you know Mercedes have a type 164? It's the GL class in 2006 to 2012, and that was their type 164. Also interesting is that just like Alpha, Mercedes GL class type 164 was superseded by their type 1662. So Mercedes skipped 165 as well. We're not sure why. Mm, well, right, as we're talking about Brera's or Brera, a good pal of mine in the club is, uh, is Peter Cambridge. He's the guy who led the ProDrive Brera S development in the noughties. And now, apparently, the Brera S was originally going to be based on the Q4 four-wheel drive model, but Alpha switched over to front-wheel drive. So after all that work, it was back to the drawing board. So then, having perfected the geometry, the spring rates and dynamics, after hundreds of hours of effort, driving up and down the Fossway, in and out of the Bilstein and Ibach HQs, uh, the finished product turned up off the boat from Italy with a hollow front anti-roll bar. As luck would have it, Peter says it made very little difference. All this talk about collaborations made us think about Alpha's relationships with coach builders, not just the styling houses, but actually assembling the cars as well. Pininfarina is obviously the most famous building cars outside Turin, right up to the Brera and Spider eras. There were lots of other smaller companies that did that same thing too. For example, there's a village on the banks of Lake Como called Mandello del Lario, which is not only home to Motoguzzi, also to a very short-lived but glorious coach builder called Autotecnica Delario, ATL. And they were around from about 1969 to 1976, so very short-lived. But rumour has it they produced eight bodies for the Alfa Romeo 1900 Sport Coupe, which is an incredible-looking vehicle, it really is, and is currently one up for auction. They also did a Fiat Bacchetta Sport, which also looks amazing. So I could buy one of those 1900 Sports and an Alpha 90 briefcase at the moment. I actually stayed in the next village up the lake from Mandela del Ario a couple of years ago, but it was August, so it was closed. The museum? No, the whole village. Eight's a pretty small production run, but it's not much more than the number produced by Fagoni and Falashi in Paris. Before the war, it was quite common for manufacturers like Alpha to export chassis and for local coach builders to add their own bodies. There are quite a few English-bodied Alphas. But the French operation was a bit more involved than that. It went through quite a few changes and almost as many financial crises and false dawns 
as the parent company in Milan. But it did lead to a few cars being sold with Alfa Romeo Paris on the badge rather than Alfa Romeo Milano. Thanks to Tom Taylor for sending in that fact. And by an amazing coincidence, we have a two-part feature on the Paris operation in the next issue. Now, you mentioned the Arna earlier, which is, uh, of course, was designed really to keep the Alfa factory at Emiliano busy after the demise of the Sud. But that made me think that there's a whole load of cars from that era that look like they should be hatchbacks that aren't. Like the Alpha Sub, which originally only came with a boot. But this is where the argument usually kicks off and, well, what was the first hot hatchback? And, of course, all the VW lovers insist that the Golf GTI was, as the Alpha Sub only had a boot till about 81 anyway. Citroen kept the trend for this uh, looking like there's a hatch when it's really a boot uh, up right until quite recently. So we had the CX and the GS right up to the recent C6. And of course, Austin had the wonderful Allegro and the Reggie Princess 2. That's two of the worst cars ever made. Well, yeah, possibly you could say that. I couldn't possibly comment. But uh, there was the Ford Capri Mark 1, which is a good looker. Uh, the Lancia Gamma Bellina. Um, the Audi Coupe, including the original Quattro. Then, of course, you've got the Alfetta GT Coupe, uh, which became the GTB and GTB 6, but which you know looked like it should have had a big hatchback. But well, it kind of did, but it had the worst of both worlds. It had a hatch, which was really the glorified window, but no folding rear seats. And conveniently, the first had a single gas strut, but mounted right in the middle. So getting stuff in and out was about an impossibility. Anyway, only the Italians. Yeah, the Alpha Sud Sprint had a similar arrangement, but at least it had two struts. Not that they lasted very long. And the Mito, of course, only has two doors, like the Alpha Sud and all the best Alphas. Including your four-door Julia? Well, as you well know, the rear doors on my Julia are only for show and are deliberately never opened. But talking about coach builders, Batoni, of course, famed for some of the greatest cars, many of which were Alphas, including the Montreal, the early Giulietta Sprint and Speciali, the Bat and Carabo concept cars, and of course the Julia GT. In the 70s, Batoni had over 1,500 employees, but they went bust in 2014, on my birthday actually, unrelated hopefully. And the use of the brand name was granted to Batoni Design, who are now primarily architect. So quite a sad end in terms of their motoring designs, but there is one small Batoni factoid, which I'll save for later. Okay, it's time to move on. And it's time for our final fact of the show. And that is David. Okay, well, my final fact this week is that the new Alfa Romeo Tonale is not Alfa Romeo's first hybrid powered car. It's actually the third or the fifth, depending on how you count them. Jamie Porter mentioned the fact that there was a Julia hybrid in all the workshop training manuals when the Julia was launched with an earlier version of the powertrain that's in the new Maserati giblet. Yeah, that, so that was the second or the fourth. So this one was much, much earlier than that, predated the Toyota Pius by around 10 years or so. So the Pius Prius, uh, what was that, mid-late 90s? So this would have been, what, kind of 164 base? A little bit earlier than that, and this is a cool fact submitted by club member Mark Quinlan. It was 1986 and based on the 33 Sport Wagon, and they called it the Ibrida. Plenty of space for the batteries then? Well, it needed it as well. It had 110 kilos of NICAD batteries. Car with memory effect, not ideal. But if that was the first one, what were the second and third? Well, they were 33 sport wagons too. They basically built three, all in slightly different configurations. But importantly though, did it work? Well, it seems to have done. It had a 16 horsepower electric motor that added quite a bit of power to the 95 horsepower boxer engine through a belt drive. Alternatively, it would do about 40 miles per hour just on batteries alone that did just have a three mile range. 
But the idea was to reduce fuel consumption and city centre pollution for taxis. What happened to it? Uh, it's in the basement of the museum. And 1986, so that was the year of the Fiat takeover. So I suspect it was killed when the new owners came in. But certainly not something I was aware of. So it's earned Mark a rather glorious built for athletes. Alfa Romeo Racing All and Backpack. So congratulations, Mark. Yeah, it looks like the work done on the 33 wasn't entirely wasted either. Fiat set up a sort of skunk works operation at a race called VAIMA uh, vehicles with uh, minimal environmental impact, which produced all electric versions of the Panda, Cinquecento and Seicento. The motor for the Abrida was provided by Ansaldo, who also make nuclear reactors. Can you imagine a nuclear Alfa? I did have a look for other battery-powered alphas. And although there aren't any factory ones, there have been a few. There's a 105 coupe that's been all over the internet recently, yours for half a million euros. There was an electric Dretto Spider built for Lapo Elkan, brother of John Elkan, chairman of Stellantis, and the grandson of Gianni Agnelli. So Yamaha built an all-electric 4C to show off their powertrain research. And Romeo Ferraris have built a Giulia for the Pure ETC racing series. And that'll be the FIA e-touring car world cup from 2022. Here's a tenuous link about nuclear reactors. Margarita Hack, the lady who ran the Brera Observatory, was a vehement Italian communist. But I love this quote she made about nuclear energy. She was in favour of nuclear research, but against the construction of nuclear power stations in her home country. And she said that Italy is not capable of maintaining nuclear reactors as Italy is a scarcely reliable country. That makes sense. They certainly shouldn't do the electrics. I looked into alphas and batteries, but all I found was Mito owners blaming dead batteries for every fault from not being able to fit wind deflectors to flat tyres. Yes, haha. One more tenuous link. I said there was another random fact about Batoni, and this one links to Ansaldo, who made the Ibrida motor. One of the very few recent commissions done by Batoni that's not architecture was for Trenitalia, the Italian railways where Bertoni restyled the Alstom high-speed train. And it does look quite cool, I have to say. But then I do quite like trains. Also, before the 33 sports wagon was called a sport wagon, it was called a giardinetta, which is slightly ambiguous. It could have been a very small garden or a very small gardener. Well, hopefully, Google translates it as station wagon. Now, you see, I'd buy a Julia little gardener. I think we all would. OK, that's it. That's all our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Alpha Driver UK. I'm A Rock East Vids. Uh, David is at uh, Mito Register. And I'm at Arock UK Thames V. Or you can go to our group account, which is Arock underscore UK official, or our website. We've got all of our previous episodes up there and links to our upcoming events, including National Alpha Day, where you'll be able to see all two of the Spider Millimillias. We'll be back again with another more conventional episode in two weeks' time on May the 23rd at 1.30pm. You'll be able to download it from iTunes, Podcast Addict, YouTube and everywhere else you'd expect. Until then, stay safe.